Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about training and leadership from a special forces perspective. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, we're back at it here on Tactical Breakdown. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us here on the podcast. If you're brand new, welcome. Thank you for being here. If you're a returning listener, as always, thank you so much for your love and support. And if you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast. Whatever podcast player you're on, or whether it's Apple or Android, doesn't matter. Follow, subscribe to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the latest training, news, and resources that we have available for you here at ILET. And um, if you haven't already checked out the ILET Network, which is the International Law Enforcement Training Network, you can check that out at ILET.network. That's ILET.network. Check out the website. We're going to be launching our community platform here in February 2022. So depending on when you get a hold of this uh, episode, it's either already running or it will be coming up very, very shortly. So excited for that. On today's episode, I had the fortune of interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Steve Nash. Uh, Steve was a former commanding officer for one of our elite units with the Canadian Forces, JTF-2. He has an extensive service background. Um, He's deployed all over the world in command positions in Special Forces and has a very unique perspective when it comes to training, when it comes to leadership, and uh, just really excited that I was able to have him on the podcast and honored that he took the time to do this with us. I had the opportunity to train with him in Toronto uh, with the Toronto ETF and the TAC team when we did the CTOS event earlier this year. And um, just a phenomenal gentleman and uh, cannot wait to do continuing work with him and his company in uh, 2022. So let's jump into this episode on leadership and training from a special forces perspective. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Joining me today from Ontario, Canada, uh, Steve Nash. And it's actually retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Nash with the Canadian Forces. Um, Steve, you've been an instructor with uh, Land Command and Staff College uh, here with Canadian Forces. You were also the commanding officer uh, with some of our Tier 1 units um, and can softcom. And, um, I just, I'm honored and I appreciate you taking the time to join us here, brother. No. So, uh, thanks for that. I was very lucky in my military career to work with phenomenal people. Even if I'm not that phenomenal, most days I cross paths with, uh, certainly some of the top, uh, people, citizens, soldiers, et cetera, that we could have in our military and in militaries abroad. And you and I have talked before, so I'm uh, pretty jazzed up to talk about a bunch of different things and see what we can share with each other. And it might be of use for someone else out there. Yeah, and absolutely. And so for just for context, for everybody listening to this, uh, Steve and I actually got connected for the first time through OTAB. And if you follow ILAT or anything that we've been doing uh, with those guys, I had, the, I had the privilege of being able to help out running the Canadian Tactical Operations Summit. And Steve was one of the speakers during that event. And so uh, we got some FaceTime uh, down there. We got to, I got to see your presentation in person, and that was awesome. And um, you talked a lot about a lot of very interesting things, and you brought some concepts and brought a lot of context um, to to those operators, to those uh, those tactical unit guys from your time with the forces. But you also bring in a lot of other um, information, and you bring in a lot of other experience. 
that I think is super critical that we start talking about. And so that's kind of where I want to start this conversation off, Steve, is just before we hit record, we were talking about the importance of kind of getting outside your bubble a little bit with training and and, and branching out and seeking knowledge in in just different places. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on that and kind of how that spurred what, what you've started to put together here. No, for sure. And for me, I spent a lot of time over the last sort of 20 or 30 years doing focusing on a few different things. One, I love, I'm totally jazzed up by people and human engagement and how people come together to get things done. And, and ironically, if I, if I think of my time in Cansoftcom and working with other like forces, the two aspects that really amaze me the most is one, the quality of the people and the things that they could do individually, but more importantly as teams. And the second part is what made the first part so special is that every one of those people was a person. And I might say like you and I, and literally I was among them and I'm not that special overall. And I was like, wow. So if regular human beings flawed, like we all are, can do these amazing things, like why can't all groups do this? Why can't all people just pony up? Why can't all things just be uh, have this, you know, a special team applied to them for resolution? And mm-hmm. some people that I deal with, in fact, many, they they want to they want to extend what we might call the superhero ID, the Marvel world or the DC Comics world into the real world. Because every, whether it's Batman or Superman, Spider-Man, they have these superpowers and, and Superman literally hates kryptonite. But we can accept those things. But humans are even more fascinating to me. Because they are still, like every high-end operator I ever cross paths with, uh, Salters, etc., some of the best folks in the world, but they are still human beings. Uh, and one of my, you know, one of the themes I like most is I got a number of years ago after I retired, I went to teacher's college uh, back to university at 43. And one of the profs I had there, uh, one of the best natural teachers I ever met, he reminded us all that Pobody is perfect. Right. You're, you're, <laughs> and even the typo in there, that's what spurns it. Like I got it. But it's so it's not about nerfection. It's about how excellence to me is a habit of choice a habit of what is the very best thing that I can possibly do at any given second in the real world. And not so good that right now you can't, you can't perform tomorrow because there's a balance in there. Right. And one of my other favorite themes is the Goldilocks, neither too much nor too little, not too hot, not too cold, just right. But to go back to that early question, the other piece of what I like beyond people is this idea of, how do we know what we know? You know, the baseline of epistemology, philosophy and epistemology, right? Which has been considered for, I don't know, at least 5,000 years. So how do we know that we know? When we're doing training, how do we know that's what we should do in training? How do we know when that is good, a good training result and that's a bad training result? And, and these different ways of measuring, considering, uh, deciding on, success criteria failure criteria abort criteria and and the other piece that's really important for me there the other you know maybe the major question that i ask myself and others most is so what so what seems everyone in the society in the world wants to tell me something and my first question back to them is so what not as in i don't care but well so what does it mean to me so what should i do 
if you tell me it's hot out today or sunny or cold or rainy, well, so what? Well, maybe I should get a rain jacket. Maybe I should close the garage. Maybe I should cover up, like do something. Because I look in that and then the other piece of epistemology, well, how do you know that something is valid, worthwhile, paying attention to, will contribute to something now and in the future, right? Because humans struggle uh, with these ideas every day. So when we take it to a tactical concept, I'm a believer that if whatever you're good at and whatever your focus is, you will have a blind spot because that's your thing. So this idea, well, how can we take a step back and how can we consider this from at least a few different angles to validate what we believe to be true? Because that's what we believe. And, you know, one of one of my, you know, I love working with tactical operators in, in policing and I've uh, very proud to have supported OTAB since 2005 when I helped them create the program that we largely still use, the TAC Team Leadership Program for building tactical policing leaders in the province of Ontario. But, you know, the challenge is, well, what does this mean? Have we actually been thinking about this? And, you know, to use a, uh, a slightly inappropriate scientific phrase, like if you're in the group, you'll love the smell of your own farts. So you'll love tactical farts and anyone who doesn't have tactical farts will, will look at it a different way. But I'm like, why, why do we believe that? And is it objectively... Uh, objectively real from at least a few different vantage points. And mm -hmm. if you think of policing in the, the first world in the 21st century, it's under massive attack. So, and the, the answer should not be, well, you don't get to tell me what to do because in democracies like in Canada, the U S UK, etc., the citizens actually have a role in this and they actually have a say. And if you go to Robert Peel's original eight or nine rules of policing, they are right in there because he, you know, declared every citizen is a police officer and every police officer is a citizen. So this interactive role is important. Mm -hmm. So what do we pay attention to? What do we look away from? Because we, we don't have an unlimited amount of time and energy and even intellectual capital to consider these things. So how do we prioritize? How do we know when we're making progress? How do we know when we're failing? And then the next question, like, so what? Should we do something about it or carry on? There's a lot to unpack there. And I'm, <laughs> you're probably, you, you can't see this on the podcast, but I'm sitting here just frantically taking notes. Um, first thing I want to bring up is I'm sure I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent positive that the old uh, CO at infantry school, um, when I was going through my uh, uh, disbanded platoon commander course had learned from you at some point, because every single time one of us would come up to him with a problem, he would be like, okay, and? <laughs> yeah. Like, because it was, it was essentially what, okay, great. That's a, that's a piece of information. It does nothing for me unless you either give me a solution to it yeah. or, you know what I mean? Like that's, um, and it was, it's that mindset that I think that is, you know, it, it's funny because it's, it's such a funny concept. It's so simple. Like, right. It's like, don't bring me a problem unless you have a solution for it kind of thing. Well, at least, and at least, uh, at least have had a thought to at least the next level. And, you know, our world is filled with rightful citizens demanding different things. We live in first, you know, we're in a G7 country in, you know, 21st century Canada. So people literally have the right and the freedom to say just about whatever they want. 
but part of me on the so what like so what do you want me to do you want to tell me something about you okay and then maybe they're like well i want you to i want you to approve of it okay i'm not sure why you need me to approve your life but okay well no i need you to you know to use some of the terms i need you to be an ally or i need you to be an advocate i'm like oh okay but and then part of me like why and and i'm someone one of the other things i did on retiring from the military besides going back to university is i spent nine years with a social welfare agency uh largely working for free but as an outreach worker uh doing life skills program in schools for like kids in grade six and much of that experience um was important for you to understand these so what's in a different world because you might you and i might be having this discussion but i know uh, and and maybe in my previous life in the military i could expect certain things to happen in other places in the world if you go to the second or third world this happens but part of the world we live in right now has these things they might just not be around you or i or others right now like in our sphere of awareness so then the so what so what are we talking about mm -hmm. and this this idea from the infantry school to me it is a fundamental for combat arms and especially for folks in a military in an infantry concept and i know being in the infantry is not rocket science well some of it is i guess now can launch rockets from something irony but this idea well okay can you think of something thank you for giving me an observation can you think of it to at least a next level the so what well it's sunny today so what like we need to drink more water like i don't know what it is tell me it's going to be uh, the ground's going to get muddy because it's got water in it or is frozen there's there's some next piece and to be able to prompt your brain to do that is valuable and of course in a combat arms uh, context in a military setting can you do that when you're under stress because sometimes the problem sometimes the tiny little thing is uh might save someone's life and i'll give you an example in my uh, you know, I had a pretty lucky military experience. I probably had the, the luckiest military career of everyone I, anyone I know. But on one, as a young officer in, in Africa, in Somalia, we were doing a little activity, uh, uh, you know, an operation with a platoon level. And there was some shooting and I saw green tracers. And in my mind, from my formative training, I knew that nato related forces have red tracers and others in the world have green tracers but what came to my mind in that instant was well that's not right how could there be green tracers out here right like who's not paying attention and then a second later my brain went wait a second like i switched to this so what so what that means and the the trajectory of those things and the color means that there's something they should be something important to me as in incoming enemy fire so in you know in that little example that little comeuppance of well there's something happening an observation well so what this and that and then the, to transfer over to you know in a, in a sense of epistemology i then knew something and i knew how i knew and then i could apply it all of a sudden to you know our benefit uh and maybe to our own safety but i think yeah. those things happen to around us all the time but the human brain is has specifically evolved to ignore most of what is happening around us because there's just too much and it ignores what happens in us biologically we don't pay attention to most of the systems that keep us alive they just do i'm gonna cycle back to the um the 
adult learning and pedagogy and things like that, because I know you're going through your PhD right now in education. And so I want to get back to that um, and have a deep dive into this. But one last thing I want to touch on about something you had mentioned previously, um, and I wanted to, to kind of get your thoughts on this, because you spoke to this actually when, when I was in Ontario with you, um, and that's the concept of teams. Um, and what you had said, and I'll let you kind of clarify this, because this is just my, my very slow brain trying to kind of <laughs> catch up to itself, um, something to the effect of nobody's perfect 100% of the time. Well, of course uh, not. Well, poverty is perfect, so, right? Like, I, but I, I'd love you to yeah dive in on that that topic because you know we we talk about officers all the time and how they're expected to every t- single time they go out on patrol we're expecting that that perfect performance um, or at least the the community as a whole that's the general perception um, and I think that's an important topic especially when it comes to the idea of you know mental health resiliency which are the other things that you spoke about when uh, you presented in uh, at OTEP yeah for sure. So, you know, this idea of making mistakes, things don't go well, it's not perfect. You know, I, I'm not that smart, but I did a bachelor and a master's of education. And I'm, you know, at the start point of a doctorate of education and the idea of learning, learning for human beings cannot, cannot occur without conflict, mistakes, errors, and failures. If we get it right, And that might be a false positive. It might be something totally out of control that you get what you want or it works out. We will tend to do the same thing over again, which is the opposite of learning. Bringing in innovation or a new way or change is difficult for humans, right? We resist change even when we need to. Um, But we cannot learn. We cannot grow without the breakdown and the failure. If you think of maybe it's easiest to understand biologically. If you hurt your physical body, if you get a cut and it heals, the skin on the scar is stronger than the skin around it. If you break a bone and you let it heal, the bone will generally heal stronger than the other bones or than it was before. That's a learning fire system. When we do physical fitness training, we don't get stronger in the training. We actually break things down in the training. And when your body responds in your recovery period, it says, we didn't get this right. We weren't quite prepared. We will now rebuild ourselves biologically to be better prepared next time this stressor comes up. And, you know, if you think of the idea of fitness, there's lots of ways to define it. But I tend to prefer to think of it as merely the ability to respond to stress. So physical fitness, you respond to physical stress, cognitive fitness you respond to idea stress new ideas and thoughts emotional fitness you can then take on emotional stressors and the fun part about human beings is we're totally integrated systems we're indeed a system of systems because not only are we something as a specialized system ourselves, but human beings are pack animals by evolutionary biology So we interact in a certain system way with other humans and actually with other species, right? To, to elevate our game, so to speak. And they're all, they're things that have evolved in us in, depending on how long you think humans have existed, you know, between 200,000 years and maybe a million years, depending on the, where you look at the line and declare that's a person or a human. But many of these things come from other species as well. And we we are inherently related to all those things. 
right? And so this idea of how we learn, how failures occur, and then the question becomes, so what? Someone did something wrong. So what? What are we going to do? Should we? Uh, and then the Goldilocks effect comes in. We can overreact or underreact. But we what, what we want to try and do is react in the middle, just right. But in order to understand the just right, you need to know what your uh, success criteria are and understand them well enough to head towards them. Because sometimes we want to declare things and humans like uh, things that either are or not. Is it yes or no? Is it good or bad? Should I do it or not? Is it against the law or is it okay? But the world is much more subtle and much more complex than that. That's why things like climate change, which is like a totally different topic, is difficult for us to understand because it's a true system of system of systems set up to try to understand how it operates and what would be better or not. And, you know, part of the, when you look at the challenge, whether it's in tactical operations or in your life, you cannot predict the future and you cannot, it is impossible in flawed logic to understand two different outcomes. So if you, if you and I are on a tactical mission, we make some decisions, something happens, it goes wrong. And then you or I or others say, well, if we go back to that point, if we had turned left instead of right, that whole bad part of the mission could have gone away. Well, potentially, but there's no way to validate it. And there's only, as far as we can tell, there's only one level of existence in our plane of awareness of a timeline from the past to the present to the future. Mm -hmm. And the future you can't predict no matter how much we try. And the past, humans are terrible in how they remember things. Our brain, our memory is not particularly accurate, especially if it's traumatic or stressful. Because when the human uh, under stress, human physiology does some interesting things to save your life in the moment, but it may have destroyed your memory of many to most aspects of what actually occurred. So all this, you know, bad answer to a great question, like how do we get around when things go wrong and how do you prevent it in training and what's the value of training? Does it, does it prevent anything? Does it actually get you better at what you need to get better at? I think that comes down to the individual instructor who's in charge of that training at the time. Right. I mean, we had, um, uh, and this is going to, I guess this is kind of going to be the first time I speak about it in, uh, in an open setting, but for, for ILET, what we're doing is we're developing an instructor program. It's an instructor development program. And that is, it's essentially, we want to take an instructor, but we want to show them the things that nobody is teaching them in an instructor program, right? Yeah. Adult learning methodology, all of the different things that nobody likes to touch on. And we had a very interesting discussion last night. Um, and we ended up deep diving into the concept, like with like Bloom's uh, taxonomy. Yeah. Um, and so, and for those of you guys listening, um, I'll link something to it in the, in the description here. So uh, we don't have to kind of take the time to explain it. Um, but the concept is, establishing before you come a lot of trainers when they start developing training what they'll do is they'll say well we have to hit um these core training components to get our checks in the box that's what that's what the boss wants um or that's what our policies and procedures state or that's what the general accepted practice is whatever horrible term you want to use 
And then we're going to build our training around those and make it fit. With Bloom's taxonomy, the idea is, well, we have to first establish what is our desired outcome or what is the desired competency that we want the student, the learner to reach by the end of training and then kind of work our way back through that to create it. And for me, and this is where I want to have this interesting conversation with you because it is very similar to when we're writing out uh, an ops plan or something um, in the military where, well, what is what does the boss want to do? And, and then it starts funneling back down and we figure it out, understanding the commander's intent for the mission in the first place. And then we have to kind of backtrack our way through it to make it successful. So what are, so how do those two things tie together? Um, and then what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, excellent. So this, I, this idea of, it goes back to your early question on ask, asking the why, like getting to the why. So for training, why are you training? If, are you training to have a better or higher predicted desired result on a specific objective? Then tell me what the objective is. Tell me the factors. You should be able to draw them out, show a picture, show a video, outline them all. And you also have to define better because better is subjective. Better than what? Best ever? And, and this is where memes and trite nonsense, so we're going to give 110%. Okay, good meme, just logically impossible and trite nonsense. Uh, I'm, we're going to do the best we can. We're going to give it our all. Okay, got it. Well, you can only ever do your best, even when it's shitty or when it's great. But this idea, we have these, you know, one of my favorite uh, trite memes is, you know, aim for the moon, and if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Right. Untrue, uh, in astrophysics, if you miss the moon, you will die a death very lonely in the empty, dark silence of freezing <laughs> cold space. So, but 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 that is, that's actually a hard reality. Miss what you're going to do, and failure can be stinging and catastrophic. That's more of real life. Right. But we don't, oh, you know, well, then that'll dissuade people. Well, if you're going to be easily dissuaded in doing difficult things, you're in the wrong spot. Don't get a, a never quit tattoo because to me that often means you're about to quit. Because I know I haven't why, done much in my life. Why do you need the motivation on your arm, right? <laughs> no. Well, because humans love to virtue signal and put things out there. Hashtag doing awesome things. And I want to go back and say, well, hashtag no, actually just hashtagging it. You know, like, so, because some things suck and you barely, you grind through. And sometimes that is what you need from training. If I go back to my experience at U.S. Army Ranger School, right, I begged to go on that course, but it probably took 10 years off my life. I lost 43 pounds. <laughs> Regretted that almost immediately, right? Well, but, but over time, I learned what it was. I learned, you know, I did it as a 24-year-old lieutenant. Okay, great. And, you know, I did reasonably well. I survived, whatever. But what it did is it showed me that when things really suck and you have you have lost control because you're essentially treated like a POW on that course, right? That's why you have a number and not a name. You have no rank, nationality, or name. And they limit your food and sleep to give you artificial stressors to break you down to see who you really are. And and selections for whether it's CanSoft, Calm, or you know, the SAS, whatever group. Those things are all designed to break you down to who you really are. Because we all wear a facade of who we want people to think we are. And then inside, we're a few different people. But it goes back to this, well, why are you doing this training? One of the things that worries me the most, uh, and this isn't to unfairly critique policing in Canada, because it's, it's 
among the best policing in the world. But this idea of, well, we got to go shoot because you have to shoot once a year. So you're training to train and get a tick in the box. That is different in mindset, in application, and in a whole other piece of I'm training in order to get better at a difficult skill that could harm people or save them in probably the most difficult, most stressful seconds of my life and maybe the most difficult and stressful seconds of someone else's life. That is a different type of training. And, and the challenge is even we do training where we don't want people to get hurt in training. And my best example of that is use of force training. Many policing organizations, private security organizations, etc., do almost no use of force training. I think in Canada, the standard is maybe once a year or for uh, a few years ago, I did some work. I was seconded to the RCMP looking at their use of force program for like carotid control and baton and pepper spray and whatever. They only did those things every two or three years. So how can you expect in a rational sense to be really good at something or good enough to apply it to the benefit of citizens under high stress when you do it every two or three years. That is nonsense. That's it's a, that's an interesting concept. This one and this one got a lot of traction, um, especially in the U.S. Um, a, a while ago, um, I don't remember what it was, but Jocko Willink went on Joe Rogan yeah. Yeah. and basically said he's like, "You have we have our our military members, not just in the U.S. but in Canada, where." We'll have a, we know that we have a nine month deployment coming up. So we're going to train for a year and a half leading up to that for that nine months. Um, and now in the street, you have an officer who trains for, um, you know, 40 hours for direct conflict, direct action. Um, and that's it for the rest of their year. <laughs> like you're yeah. kind of, yeah. it's, it's just such an inverse of, yeah. of what it, it's, it's crazy. And then people expect, you know, people expect an officer to come to show up at their house and they expect them to be um, the, the Navy SEAL and they expect them to be um, a, a mental health professional and they expect this and they expect that. And I mean, this is a horse that's been beat to death a thousand times. Yeah, well, cause, cause you got to pay the price. If you want to be good at something, you got to pay the price. And I love, I love the star Wars series and the idea of it. But one of the things they show in the later, in the light, the latest movies is while, you know, Anakin or uh, Luke Skywalker, I'm, and I'm much more amenable to the fat, old, angry Luke Skywalker. Now, I just, <laughs> like, I understand that now, right? Like, wow, I can even understand why he's annoyed. Right. But the idea that he would train for 30 or 40 years to gain mastery, and then someone else would show up, and coincidentally, a young woman, who with a few days of wiggling the stick and, you know, watching him dive in the ocean and catch giant fish somehow, like, then they transmitted this magic power and it's not magic. That's, that's the whole thing about training. If, and you know, uh, as Jocko says, like you got to pay the price. So defund the police to me is a form of insanity. If you're complaining about what they do and how they do it to suggest that they get less money and less interest and less training would, (laughs) It, it, it seems it seems good, but it's related to another meme or mantra that I think is nonsense. Let's do more with less. Do you know what you get with less? Less. Right? Like, right. 
uh, I can't remember where I was, and I I think I think this was actually so it was it was one of um it was a it was an operator who who was tasked to SIFSAT um when I went through uh like seer level one or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember, we were having a conversation, we were like four days in, and they're not feeding us, and he literally, and the conversation came, somebody was talking, and he overheard them, and they were talking like, you know, slow as smooth, or slow as smooth, smooth as fast, or whatever, and he's like, no, motherfucker, fast as fast. <laughs> like, like, I'm well, just like, all right, well, here we go, like, it's, um, but <laughs> you brought you brought something up that I do want to touch on, and and I think this is a huge misconception even for officers now. They say I would be a better shooter only if I had more range time, if I had more ammunition, more this, more that. I think what they don't understand is the difference between them and say the guys that served under you in a tier one unit. That operator is going to find a way to train and get better no matter what they're what's kind of given to them. And it's it's a mindset. And I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. Well, but also that's but that's why selection up front is very discriminatory and biased. That's why when you say in selection uh you're not coming, we are not inviting you. Thank you for coming out. Maybe you can try in the future or not, but you're not invited. And that is highly discriminatory and biased. The same way I'm discriminatory and biased when I, in North America, I drive on the right side of the road and I stop at a stop sign and proceed when the way is clear. That's also, uh, right, discriminatory biased behavior. But you have to make, why why are you checking for this? One, one of the great uh, luxuries I had in my military career was when, when I went in Kansofcom to the C-Gyru in Trenton, right, I was tasked to take something that existed and transform it into what could be called a special operations unit. Uh, so we had to get right down to brass tacks, myself and many others, and say, well, okay, so what? What is the difference between this and that? And how would you tell and how would you measure it? And how would you notice it and how would you correct it? Because this idea of, you know, humans value what they measure, but not everything they measure is valuable. And we're and it, to me, it's the difference between precision and accuracy. Precision, people and and bureaucracies, and even in training, we love precision. Make me a more detailed curriculum with more detailed. I want a full paragraph or a full chapter on each outcome so I can understand it. Blah blah blah. Right. So part of that is useful, but Goldilocks theory says not beyond a certain point. And I see this, I love, uh, I, one of my great luxuries now is to teach at, at uh, various colleges, right? And although I speak at universities, I'm not that smart. So, um, but in these programs, as the colleges in Canada and Ontario develop into the 21st century and beyond, now there's, there's curriculum reviews and this big mapping. I'm like, well, hey, that's precision. Like you want to check my font. And whether I used a comma instead of a semicolon in some document that's in some document that connects to a document that corrects to connects to curriculum that connects to the course outline. But accuracy is can I get in a classroom and have a positive learning effect or promote a positive learning experience for a student? They're two different measures. So one of the the idea of precision is getting down to is that. You know, it's point zero zero one zero one zero zero seven five three two one zero one. Okay, great. 
accuracy is binary. It is or it isn't. Did you hit the target or not? Did you cause collateral damage or not? And in policing, at tactical policing and tactical operations, success criteria are usually binary. But our measurement systems are precision, which part of is nonsense. But we we will twirl and twist ourselves into a circle because if you think of how do you make a good shooter? Well, there are certain proven methods uh, that certain people use. Some of those methods are antiquated. Some of those are more so that it's safe on the range, even if it doesn't help you on operations. Because if you really want to have on uh, success on operations in the world, your ranges will look different and they'll be inherently more risky and dangerous. But if you can't accept danger in your program, then why would you send officers or tactical operators in the world where something can go wrong? And if you're going to, you know, when I used to oversee training for lots of different groups, I would tell them if we're going to have a problem and a failure, let's have a failure in training rather than a failure in operations. But we are set up in the Canadian military, Canadian policing, and in the first world to watch training and watch for all the things to be perfect so everyone can get a big check in the box. I'm like, well, what's that check for? That you think they're ready to go? Well, okay, so that's that's uh, accuracy. It's a binary. It's a binary yes or no subjective. But we prefer objectivity, so that's where we get precision in, and we make all these boxes in a matrices of the 100 skills and the 100 parts of each skill, some of which I find is useless, especially especially around true high performers. Uh, who could be Beethoven's music teacher? Well, by I think he was writing concertos by the time he was around 10, so no one. But he wasn't a great music teacher, I don't think, either. Not, not necessarily so. So what is it you want? Do you want to take the average person and make them great? Are you looking for the most phenomenal natural shooters who do it in a totally different way? And if you look, if you take those ideas of why and what you're going to look at for measure, look at NFL combines. They are terrible at predicting who is going to be a star. Likewise, uh, NHL or any professional sport is generally terrible because they go into a precision metric when it's actually an accuracy metric in the future. Who's going to be the best player 10 years from now? We have no idea. But we have a hard time accepting that. And if you're going to offer someone a $10 million contract, we want to feel better about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really interested in that topic. Um, there's And just a point of clarification real quickly for our American and international friends. Uh, CGIRU is the CBRN um, arm of our special forces up here in Canada. So uh, if you're wondering what that was, um, that's that acronym. Um, I like this idea. Like I, I was watching an interesting uh, training video on shooting um, and more like kind of point shooting. Um, and it was a it was a tier one guy, uh, two tier one guys from two different units um, in one Army, one Navy in the U.S. Oh. Um, and both. Both were talking um, how this this whole idea of trying to be, you know, front sight focused um, on target inside of 25 yards. They're like, I literally just look down the front of my gun and shoot. <laughs> I've never had an issue. Well, <laughs> like it's 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 interesting, though. That it just the it's 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 
I don't think we do enough. I don't think we do enough work as instructors simplifying concepts to our learners for them to pick it up. Like we don't understand how humans learn. Trying to specify something down to to the minute, intricate components doesn't work when we're trying to get them to adapt what they're actually doing in the field. Well, and that becomes it, right? When in doubt, many to most humans go to precision. Let's be really, 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 really sure of it. When the, the measure of success, the real criteria is did it work or not? It's, it's binary and it's about accuracy. So we have two different measures and, and part of it is the simple view of life, which we have inside of us. And part of it, we have the complex view of life and humans can twirl themselves into circles smaller and smaller. And, you know, one of my uh, favorite phrases is, you know, when you figure out that your job is separating fly shit from pepper, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe fly shit is pepper. I don't know. Maybe they both taste the same. Maybe it doesn't matter. But, but if you think of like, think of, would you swim in a pool where there was lots of pee? Probably not. But you're like, well, so what's the titration that you would accept? So when is it too small to, or when is it too large to not pay attention to or small enough to ignore? Because in the oceans, fish pee and poop in there all the time, but you still go in there and it gets in your mouth and you don't panic. But humans have this. So when you think of, well, what are you doing to help me shoot? Is the measure that you can do the system or that you can hit center of mass or center of headshot on the move under stress at least 99 out of 100 times? Like what is what is the metric and why and how are you going to validate it? I'll, I'll tell you from uh, I'm not uh, because of my version of ADHD and I'm an impatient shooter. I'm actually pretty terrible with a long gun. I could never be a sniper because I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to sit here for 24 hours, like going to the bathroom in a Ziploc bag. Like it doesn't seem that fun to me. I don't have the patience right. for that. I'm like, I don't know. They're kind of there. There's the rear aperture and front post, you know, kind of pull. and Let's see what happens. Right. So that's why I can't do it uh, with a handgun. I'm reasonably good because it's more of an intuitive shot. Align your hands with your eyes. And when your eyes are on something, then squeeze or don't squeeze. But when I think of, um, I, I worked with, I don't know if you know Frank Paquette or not, right? Frank runs Millbrook. He's a, he's a true icon. He's a quirky character, but I love him for many reasons, including his talent in understanding shooting and how to transmit it to others, right? But he's still a human being with all kinds of flaws like the rest of us. But when I looked at that shooting package, um, the real value to me when I was in Cansoftcom was not necessarily the, the proof of it was not necessarily with our assaulters and operators because part of my brain said, well, look, if I give you 10 months and hundreds of thousands of rounds, like you can burn the barrel out of all your guns if you want. And if I can give you that with some of the best instructors in the world, I'm pretty sure we can make anyone quite good. Mm -hmm. Like that, That's the idea. The real measure to me was when, at the time, I had a, a clerk, uh, a young woman, very bright young woman, who was quite small and did not really like handguns. When that, when part of that same system allowed her to shoot 47 or 48 out of 50 every time 
on a like a basic shoot i'm like that's proof right there mm -hmm. that's proof and and at the time i was quite unkind a bit unfair to uh we had visitors for example from the rcmp ERT team from ottawa but what and they wanted to shoot with someone you know who i sent to shoot against um, them i can see where this is going okay you sent the clerk out to shoot with the yep. boys yeah and then when they said, oh, my goodness, why'd you do that? You're offending us. I'm like, well, when you can beat her in shooting, then I'll send someone else out. Like, stop. Stop it. And stop. Like, so, but even when you think of how you do selection for a team, what's more important? Is it, what's the difference between someone who can do 17 chin-ups and 18 chin-ups? Because that's a measure. What's that's the difference awesome. between someone who can do zero and 19? What's the difference between someone who can do 20 chin-ups and someone who's really smart? So, right. and then, and then if I, to me, they're like little barriers of like, what is it you're looking for and why, and how will you know when you detect it? And then maybe the more, most important thing for that type of selection is not what you want or what you're looking for. What, what will you not accept? That's what's happening in, in the Canadian military now. It's eviscerating itself. Not because it can't do certain things, but because somehow it allowed a bunch of unprofessional uh, anti-leadership, contrary to even like activities by senior folks that are just contrary to good behavior and being a courteous human being, let alone unprofessional, let alone, you know, uh, unfit for for senior leadership or command positions. But but it's that, well, what do you want? Do you want and in a military like, think of this in a military. What is your main purpose? Sovereign defense of the nation. So someone could tell me, and they have in my life in, in uh, education and social welfare and other people I know, they're like, well, you know, these things happening in the Canadian military with, you know, improper behaviors and people being hurt and sexualized, whatever. And, you know, I don't discredit that those are terrible things. But in the scale and scope of what a military does, they're not the worst things I can imagine. As a former combat arms officer, I know what applying purposely and willfully applying violence to individuals and groups is. That's much more terrible, but it has almost no focus, right? Because we live in a certain place that, you know, in a democracy, you kind of, the military responds. But, but in that scale of, well, what do you want? And ironically, in Canada, as we go through this with the Canadian military, in a democracy, it's actually up to the democratically elected government of the nation to describe in detail to a military what it will have and what it will not have. And then the government should be accountable for declaring those things. Um, but, you know, and, and a bit of a sidetrack, but to me, it's all related. What do you want and why? And how will you know how you have it and how will you validate it? Do you want people who can uh, are efficient and, and effective at killing other human beings? Well, in a military, you might need some of those, but that's particularly unpleasant to talk about. Most people don't want to think about it, let alone admit it or engage in it. And in the Canadian military, you know, I think after the Korean War, we had a shoot to kill program. But then in the 80s, it, we changed the name to shoot to live. Because we were only going to shoot in peacekeeping and we're going to save lives by shooting. Well, that's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> right. And then we didn't. Then we had a program of like, don't shoot at all. So we were surprised. And, you know, 10 years in Bosnia, 
uh, and former Yugoslavia, lots of great people doing great things, but they were suppressed in doing their soldierly task in many ways. So we were surprised going to Afghanistan when all of a sudden you actually had to kill people and the other people meant it too. Mm -hmm. And it took this change of mindset. And then we started to develop, you know, in Canada, I was, it was ironic, but we called it the gunfighter program. We couldn't have had that before. And I don't think we could say it out loud on national TV now. Like I'd like, you know, I know Wayne Eyre since 1985. I want to see him go on TV and say, we're going to do two things. One, we're going to sort out this sexual harassment thing and make a better culture. And we're really going to press on this gunfighter program to ensure that when the government tells us to defend the sovereignty of the nation, everyone in the military will be able to put accurate rounds into the heads of other human beings. Like he won't, he won't say that he'd be fired. Right. But, but the, but the open irony is that is, well, there's many reasons for a military. One is, Defend to the do violence to other people, yeah, and I think yeah, that's the think... sovereign defense of the nation. But the other one is, is, is more common and harder to understand for many of us. The Canadian military is Canada's largest social welfare agency. Not that there aren't great people, but it's kind of like a big foster home or orphanage, right? <laughs> no, but and that's and one of the ways in which a nation you can go back to Rome with Caesar. How do you make citizens? They serve in the legion. They serve Rome. And although that's an anathema to many people, they don't want to serve the nation. They want to be served by the nation. But the, the type of naive fool I am, I actually believe in service to others. How, how dare you? <laughs> well, here's, here's <laughs> here, like, um, we won't get into it here, but there is a very interesting discussion to ha have around compulsory service time. Um, I had a, I had a very God, good we can't get, we can't get the people who voluntarily join to pass a fitness test or do anything they're told right how do we think we're going to get how do we think we're going to get people uh, that we force to come in and but see if you force them to come in great topic for another time because then you could easily square away your problem of recruiting and demographics and visuals and gender whatever you could just say right we are short on these people so you were going in the military like we we want the military to be whatever percentage of women. Okay, right. We're short, so this year we are enrolling against their will. You know, fifteen thousand young women. Well, because that'll that'll solve right one of the issues. One of the issues they want is a better demographic and gender you know representation. Okay, if so, what's the measure? The numbers? Okay, well that's easy to solve. Right. But that's the the why. Why do you want this? And and that's you know think of in your, you know some of your formative training. The two part mission statement goes back to training. We will train in order to what? Mm -hmm. It's if we will train because we have to train in order to get a check in the box for training, you've just wasted your time energy. You you need to have metrics of of what it is you're trying to do and you have to be able to be open and honest and to be able to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, and I think, I think that goes back to the point you were making um, kind of with your, uh, your anecdotal story there about, you know, the RCMP guys that came down to shoot where, what are your, what are your goals in training? And I think a lot of time people get stuck in this optics and perception loop versus performance and competency. And so what will yeah. happen 
is they will create tra- well it's like we're going to do this um all right uh so we know the chief's coming down to observe training uh so we're going to run through this scenario five t- like we're going to run through it and if we don't do it right, we're going to run through it again if we don't do it right we're going to run through it again and by the end of the day man they got that thing locked down tight the chief sees it thumbs up good to go man that was a successful training day and as a trainer you're like well that was a complete waste of everyone's time because all you learned to do was be a dancing monkey in a circus yeah there was no critical thinking. There was nothing that happened. And and I think we have to start bringing this idea that failure in training is what you want. You you need that to occur. Yeah. You need there to be something there that makes it so that you have to force that person to do something rather than just having them rinse and repeat what's coming out of the instructor's mouth. No, no, for sure. Be, well, Because again, it's your metric. How are you validating that you're doing the training? Someone looked and gave a check in the box. And if you have a detailed curriculum with all these outcomes, well, how do you do the outcome of can successfully respond to conflict and chaos amid disaster in the worst circumstances? Well, how do you validate that? How do you validate, you know, agility of thought and action under stress? You know, one of the mantras of Canadian special operations is agility of thought and action. I totally believe in it. It's, it's one of the reasons I want to try and focus my dissertation work for my doctoral program in and around that, on that question. Prove to me, show me why you believe you support agility of thought and action. How do you know you know that and why? Because, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. I, I take out uh, wilderness trips with youth at risk and adults. The trips are super simple uh, and they're not very special. And I actually... Although I prepare for them with gear and everything else, the plan for the trip is we walk out four or five hours, we hang out for a few days, and we walk back. And I leave all the rest of the actual training to nature and the weather because that's where it really is. Because if I tighten down everything and I tighten this down, it's I'm making it precise, but it won't be accurate. Because all we need to really do on the trip is everyone goes out and makes it back relatively safely without catastrophic failure or injury. But that seems boring. And even in, in training, I try to run or offer to people, I have a hard time articulating what it's going to be because they're so programmed to receive it in a certain way. Oh, I need to see your curriculum documents. Oh, can you send me your PowerPoint before you present? And I say, no, because if I give you my PowerPoint point before I present, you won't pay attention for five seconds because you'll want to be a smarty pants and know what I'm talking about. And by the way, and you you see me present live, I have PowerPoint in the background to keep me on track, but that's not necessarily what we're going to talk about. Because once we go live, once we go live, things start to move, just like in operations. Like even in this discussion, what's the reason we're having this discussion? The why? Well, I think we're having a professional colleague discussion that we hope is interesting and useful for others. Okay. But if we try to be more precise at the start, maybe we've actually killed that. Maybe we've killed that thing by by overstaging it. You know, the Goldilocks, we did too much, too much staging. And not enough staging causes failure as well. You know, that's, I'm having this epiphany in my, like this light bulb moment right now. Because when, before All we- right. did I cause that? You caused that, it, yeah, yeah. It's not a tumor. <laughs> so- before every interview, and, and just like I kind of briefed you before we kicked off here, I said, like, I don't 
I don't start conversations for this podcast with ever. I never have any notes. It's here's a, here's an idea. Let's talk about it. Um, and just without, I mean, subconsciously, essentially I'm implying the same principles that we teach, which is the objective of this is to share actionable, relevant information, whatever that looks like at the end of it, it's going to be there because we're not setting hard and fast guidelines on what the conversation has to be right. We're our arcs on this are are wide open. Um, And I think that as trainers, that has to be something that we start, we start instilling in, into trainers in instructor trainer programs, which is, and, and going back to that idea of, of Bloom's taxonomy, what is, what is it that you want to achieve with your training? Why are you doing the training in the first yep. place? Yep. Awesome. So now we have to figure out how we're going to get there, but your starting point, every single class with every single student is going to be different. So yeah. you can't wedge everybody into one training model because it's not going to work. And that's currently the way that pretty much all law enforcement training is built out. That's a, a lot of the way a good portion of the standardized military training is built out, yes. um, special units excluded. <laughs> but that's, and I think that's where this conversation is kind of led. We, we started off with this idea of getting into the training. That, that's, that's where it needs to go. And it's how do we start facilitating that within our agencies, within our instructors? Well, no, no, for sure. And I think one of the real challenges, it's related to a few key ideas. One is if, you know, and I'm an educator by profession now. Normally, I'm a high school English teacher. But if you look at the education system in Canada, it is highly developed. And we are one of the leaders in the world at industrialized, packaged, programmed, education, you know, including, and we start our education process and it's like an assembly line building a car based on the year and month of your birth. So you go to school and in junior kindergarten, you do this. And then in kindergarten, you do that in grade one, you do this all the way up because you get 12 to 14 years of free education in Canada guaranteed. That's pretty good. But we've also built a student that responds to the environment because humans are generally adaptive to their environment. So does someone get 90% in grade 12 in high school because they also they have high intellectual capital and innovation or are they a good student as they've been taught by 14 years of training and are have they learned have they learned to perform to the test rather than answer the questions right do they print neatly are they polite and it's not that those things aren't valuable in life but that might be it might be a measure like I remember um, part of my experience at the, the Army Staff College as a student at Fort Frontenac. I did I did okay on the I did okay on the course. Um, but part of the commentary to me was, well, but you don't have like a real positive attitude or like you're bitching and complaining and you're critiquing and you're demanding all these things. I'm like, okay, who cares? Well, you know, the top students, they have a good attitude. I'm like, why? Why, why does, what does attitude have to do with performance? Unless attitude is one of your performance metrics, right? So, and, and later on, I was, I was directing staff there. I became directing staff, irony of ironies. And there was someone who I thought was the best performer, but they hated that course and they were hard to get along with. And I remember telling the, the, in the meeting with the other staff in the grading conference, I said, no. That guy has a terrible attitude. That's what makes it even more special 
that he's having this performance. He hates it here. He thinks it's totally suppressive, ridiculous, but I think he has high intellectual capital. Like he is a natural leader and commander just bursting, right? And we're trying to suppress him and say, well, you should put your hand up or you, and you know, putting your hand up is a good skill. But sometimes for the real performers, Leonardo da Vinci did not fit. He wouldn't get accepted to that program or Beethoven or Mohandas Gandhi or whatever, like these outliers of phenomenal performance that we recall in history were not necessarily the ones that followed all the rules of, you know, what's the font we use and we always start at nine and we face this way and we're on the line. But part of a military and paramilitary organizations like policing is we use, are your toes on the line for a reason? We use uniformity, like a uniform and uniformity to check things. To me, you just shouldn't overvalue them because uniformity is important and towing the line to see whether you understand what I'm saying and if you respond to my direction or not, because you might not have the intellectual capital, you might not pay attention, or you might not care of lawful commands. Well, those things are useful to know. But beyond a certain point, looking great in the training may have nothing to do. And again, I use pro sports. The people who come out first in the combine, how many number one draft picks in any professional sport that you can name have become superstars? Probably far less than 10%, maybe closer to 2 or 3%. So that means our predictive model is interesting and it's detailed and it's fascinating it just might not be that useful mm-hmm. and one of the real challenges um in places like at dwyer hill at jtf2 and c Dryru, c or whatever is how and why do you create the screening and selection process and so what and, and one of the things you know i was lucky enough to be part of that sort of methodology and thinking for a number of years and I kept asking people these questions and we brought in people with PhDs in, in human physiology and in, you know, in thinking and whatever. And I tried to say to them, look, can you help us? Here's what we're looking for. Can you help us find it? Because to tell someone, well, you know, this is a tough course, so you're going to do the Cooper's test. Okay, well, what does chin-ups have to do with being an operator? Well, it can display upper body strength. Okay, good. So is it, so is it, Is it meaningful if they can do 50 or is it meaningful if they can do two? And what if they're the smartest person on the planet Earth, but they can't do any? Like, how do we create a structure that finds finds this thing? Because, you know, militaries are often maligned for, uh, well, policing is similar. They're reactive. So they're training for the event that happened 10 years ago or you know, in the debriefing sessions, well, this is what happened three years ago. Okay, well, chances are that event and those people are not going to be involved again in the future. So what is the value of the training? Is it the stress part? Is it the thinking? Is it the unifying? Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, we were there at the OTAB uh, or the uh, tactical officers conference a month and a half ago. And the one debrief there was really detailed and interesting. But to me, most of what the, that officer was saying from the U.S., most of the valuable part was he was talking about the power of communications. What happens when things go wrong? What happens when you're not catching what someone else is throwing? Like there's a miscommunication. That was the most valuable because the specifics, why I went up to the tree and I looked left to right, 
are likely not going to come into effect in the future. So what is it, even in basic shooting? To me, I try and break it down to what part of your training is like the times tables. Two times two is four. Four times four is 16. That is valuable to extrapolate into life when you need to think quickly. It's in your brain. So shooting skills. Eyes and stoppages. Taking a proper sight picture. Shoot, no shoot considerations. Going from a handgun to long gun and back. Right? Like those are basic skills that you need to have like times tables. But then how you group them and apply them becomes this more, this next level complexity. And then it comes down to, you know, why and so what? Yeah, I think there's there's a really interesting concept. And I, I've had the opportunity over the last two years to work with a lot of phenomenal firearms instructors. And the conversation always seems to come back around to the, the stat- if you look at the statistics, which I think people don't look at enough, uh, especially in instru- I don't think they, they actually let what's actually happened at let, you know, the past dictate kind of what we can uh, expect in the future. But it, it was something to the effect of the issue for officer shootings and officer involved shootings isn't the fact that the officer missed their target. In fact, that is a very, very low percentage. Most of the time they hit their target. The problem was is if they should when they shot so should they shoot should they not shoot um and so why is our training going why for some reason we've identified that we're focusing 90 percent of our energy on 10 percent of the problem instead of the the inverse yes. of that which is why aren't we focusing 90 percent of our energy on 90 percent of the problem which is the decision making component of it so if you want to make officers that are involved in less officer involved shootings the, it's not about getting rounds down range. It's about teaching them decision-making. Um, and those are interesting concepts. Um, when we start talking about like this defund the police, well, we have no training budget. You don't have a budget to sit and, and round table or tabletop uh, a situation that happened with your guys. Yeah. Well, yeah. that becomes that, you know, I, in policing, tactical policing, military, et cetera, I'm, I'm a believer that there's always room for discussion, improvement, critique, and if you're sensitive to critique, it's, you know, for sure, um, in much of the training I run, I try to tell people you need to put on some skin thickener. And if it goes wrong, and if you get critique, like just say, thank you, I will learn. Like, don't fight it. Because fighting it, you're defending something that you value. I got it. But training is about learning something new. And, you know, Bruce Lee said, you know, don't go to training with your cup full. Right. Because if your cup's full, then you already know anything. There's nothing you can have added there. Don't be at the training. It's it's useless. Mm-hmm. But it is that part of, you know, you if you look at statistical data, anecdotal events. But part of the success of a policing or military operation has nothing to do with what's actually happened. It has to do with perceptions, politics, other agendas. Right. Like so to determine like, what are the outcomes that we want from our group? But this idea of being able to think, to make decisions, it's much easier to go to a range and put some rounds in a target and say, right, you got eight out of 10 in whatever circles, check mark. But why is there not more talk of, well, why is your handgun out? What are you doing right now? And in most shooting, in many uh, shooting incidents, they just use circles which are not that rep- representative of human beings. And if I use uh, last week, 
I was doing some relatively low end, but super interesting uh, use of force training for a group, small group. But no matter what techniques I can show them, I said the techniques are almost innocuous. What is important here is the understanding and awareness and actually your feeling and then your thoughts and your ability to take on certain actions because it's stress. Stress is highly predictable and what it does to the human system, right? You, you know, the inverted U tells you, uh, you know, beyond a certain heart rate, you won't be able to do fine motor skills. Then you can't do complex motor skills. So you have gross motor skills like a hockey fight. Well, then so what? So why should we be physically fit? So we can always try to keep our heart rate where we can use fine, complex motor skills and we can actually think. But we don't have many training systems or sessions <clears throat> in most places where we're like, OK, tell me more. What are you going to do now? Look at me. Uh, and I've, I've had the luxury in the places I worked and, and who I work with to transition through some of those difficult things. Like think of a range where it's non-standard where it starts with a police cruiser being rammed into another police cruiser. So the people on the, that are about to shoot, they're in the accident and then they get out and it's a hot, it's a hot situation in different directions with noises and lights. And at a certain point they have to holster their weapon and they have to go confrontational without their handgun on and tackle someone even after they were just shooting. Right. And maybe they have to do, cause though that's more like a situation, but, Part of training we worry about, and it, and it is a real concern, you can cause real trauma in situations trying to use stress inoculation or an introduction to how you feel under stress. And then now in training, you can create a $100 million lawsuit or you can cost a service a uh, million dollars for something relatively small. And that's why most private security companies their use of force program is a few hours PowerPoint self-study because then there's almost zero chance that you're going to get hurt in training. And whatever you do in the situation, if it goes wrong, that company can say, we never trained them to do that. Right. The risk I run in the training I do. Liability, baby. That's the well, name of the game in private security. Liability. Well, and, and then you can have a false positive as in something went wrong, but no one caught you out on it. So let's keep doing it. And you can have a false positive. This has gone wrong. Uh, and we should, you know, fine tooth comb it and we should pick out the culprits and who's responsible and we should get zero tolerance. We should do something I'm like, well, maybe it's a false negative. Maybe coincidence or some other untoward lightning strike caused it to go wrong. And, but most of the best operators, they take, you can't go back in time and unravel the wrong, but they prevent the worst things from happening from wrong, from the mistake. But how do we inculcate that? That's a personality type. And I'm lucky enough from my uh, military experience to know a handful of people that I believe, rightly or wrongly, I could trust with just about any situation anywhere around the world with a few sentences to them and then I turn away. But those people are few and far between. Um, and they're still flawed human beings. So, you know, maybe our training didn't make them that. Maybe they were Beethoven when they arrived. Maybe they were this one in a million person. And literally, if you're one in a million on the planet Earth, there could be 9,000 of you because there's somewhere around 9 billion people. 
So yeah. where, how do we find them? How do we train the normal people? How do we interact? And, you know, you mentioned a number of times before, each learner, each of us is inherently unique, including how we learn. And if you think, you know, pedagogy for how we teach kids and andragogy of how we teach adults, they have some overlap, but some adults learn more like kids and some kids learn more like adults. Some are this and some are that. And, you know, the for for Kolb, you know, who did lot, David Kolb, who did lots of work with experiential education, you know, most of his studies in the, you know, in sort of the last 40 ish years prove, suggest that human beings, the way our brain operates, it's difficult for us to have an experience and to feel and to think and to consider it all at the same time. We usually only do one of those things at a time. So even shooting on a range, how, mu how much time is spent before the shooting, coaching during the shooting, and then afterward, what's the, what's the follow-up tomorrow to say, right, how are you feeling about your shooting? Because I do it when I do use of force, relatively low-level use of force training. I check in four times with those people after the training. How are you today? Because in our training, we do stress inoculation. And people get hurt. But our, there's a time delay in how our body learns. For, for physical, muscular training, like endurance athletes, whatever, uh, uh, chin-ups, weight training, there's up to a 96-hour delay from the event that you did till your body responds. So where's the follow-up? In traumatic stress, you know, when you think mental health and traumatic injury, the, the delay to deal with true traumatic events in your life can be one minute, one day, one week, one year, or 30 years. Because it's it's in us and it, it was an experience and it has to get out over time, like to heal. But we don't know the timeline. Before before we dive into to trauma, especially when it relates to training and, and resiliency and stuff like that, I want to save that. I think what I'm going to do, Steve, is I'm going to have you back and we'll do a, a whole podcast on, on that topic because I know there's so many rabbit holes to dive in on that. Uh, I already have the the hamsters already spinning in my brain with, with everything we've talked about today. So um, I would love to have you back for that. With With what we've talked about today, are there any key concepts that you would like officers or listeners of this podcast to, to take away from this talk that we've had? I think in your professional self, in your professional self trying to do good things to, you know, maximize the safety and security of, of your community, your family, your country, whatever it is, try to remember Pobody's Nerfic. From that, and, and I try to do this often, talk like you might be right. So believe in yourself, but listen like you might be wrong. Because that gets to that why and the so what. Why am I doing this? Is it because it's what I do and what I believe and the only thing I've known? And so what? Should I have another perspective? Should I think of this? Should I keep going? Should I stop? And, and then to, to take that and to seek opportunities as often as you can. And you, you need to make it a priority to have talks like we've had here today. Well, Steve, I appreciate the hell out of you coming and, and taking the time and speaking with me here. Um, and I, this is going to be the first of many, I'm sure. I know we have uh, other projects and stuff that, that are going to be in the works. 
Um, and so honored that you would take the time and join us, brother, and uh, looking forward to having you back on the podcast. It's pretty fun. If nothing else, you managed to get me out of my shell. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Love it. That's what we do here. All right, Matt, we'll talk to you soon. Stay well. Thanks. Join the Islet Network now. Go to islet.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network.